Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Richard and I reflect on the story of the rich young man in Matthew chapter 19. Why was it wrong for the young man to call Jesus good? Beyond the obvious problem of greed, what does the young man's wealth reveal about the aims of false religion? Why wasn't Jesus pleased to hear that the young man followed the commandments? Can the story's admonition against wealth be applied to everyone, including the poor and working class? Can the rich enter the kingdom of God? Do you really think it's possible to squeeze an impressively large animal through a very small opening? This is not a trick question. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 33 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This week we had the reading about the rich man, and it talks about this man who had everything and he ended up going away sad because he had to give away everything. And in your sermon you talked about this, and a lot of times you and I talk about how people don't understand what real problems are, and this rich man who went away sad, I think is a great example of someone who thinks they have problems. Could you talk a little bit about how we use that and what exactly we mean when we say that? It's actually an expression I use a lot, and it frustrates people, because everyone thinks of their own situation and how difficult they have it. I mean, this is the default human mindset. Our default setting is to view ourselves as the victim because our perspective is always limited to our own experience. This is essentially why I disagree with existentialism. It lifts up our very narrow perspective as though somehow that is a good thing. When I think in fact education and enlightenment is about broadening your perspective. So if you are just living your life, going through your difficulties, facing your own struggles, it's very easy from that point of view to begin to think that you have it harder than everyone else. Just like in a recent survey, they discovered that most Americans think that they're much smarter than everyone else. When in fact, we know that most of us have an average intelligence and most of us have little to no suffering, true suffering that we have to deal with on a daily basis. People will say that suffering is relative, but at the end of the day, that just becomes another opportunity to rationalize how important you are in comparison to others. And scripture is always pushing, obviously, as we've discussed, it's pushing hard against the victim mentality. And, you know, it's funny with the gospel, which is from Matthew chapter 19, the young man who approached Jesus and very arrogantly called him the good teacher, which is a judgmental statement on the part of the young man. People hear this story in an American context, which is anti-authoritarian and has a very strong me against the man mentality that underpins a big segment of our popular culture. They look at it and they say, yeah, stick it to the young man. That's one aspect of the response to this reading. Who does this guy think he is? He's rich. The rest of us work so hard for a living. That's the one type of victim mentality with which people receive this text. The flip side 
is someone who feels that they've earned everything that they have and believes that people who haven't worked as hard as they have don't deserve to have what they have. And this whole thought process that's very common. They will also respond to this with that kind of entitlement or victim mentality. They'll rationalize and try to explain, well, Jesus wasn't really upset with him because he had money. And then they invent some reason about what's really going on in the story and so forth to get around the basic point of the reading that if you have something, it was given to you as grace. But if you have something, what's your problem? The rich young man seems very goal-driven. If I can tick off these boxes, then I know I'm on my way to the kingdom of God. Well, he uses the Torah the way the pharaohs in ancient Egypt would use the cultic religion that centered around the burial rituals of the kings, you know, the pyramids and the ancient Egyptian religion that had this whole mythology built around eternal life. And they had a system of rules and a system of rituals that played on people's desire for life, but then used that system to maintain the tyranny of the pharaohs. If you follow these rules, your spirit will pass through this chamber in the pyramid and your spirit will travel on, you know, and live with the kings and live in. But then, you know, what they would do is the pharaohs would bury themselves with their stuff and they'd bury their slaves with the implements of slavery. If your job was to serve tea to Pharaoh in this life, you would be stuck serving tea to Pharaoh for all eternity. And when a rich person is asking Jesus about the actions that he needs to do to continue to live, what he's really asking is, I'm happy with the status quo. This is the mentality of wealth. I'm in the situation that I wanna be in and I wanna make sure I take steps to maintain that situation forever. So tell me what I have to do. When you talk this way, it's just another manifestation of false religion, another manifestation of paganism, essentially. Yeah, I mean, a lot of scripture, it's a reversal of the current order. You know, we have these in many of the odes. The Song of Hannah talks about the reversal of fortunes, and the Magnificat of Mary talks about the reversal of fortunes. That's the prayer of the poor, is that the current order is going to be reversed. Right, and here God is telling him flat out, okay, you want to inherit the life that is promised in the kingdom of the heavens in this gospel, it's very simple. You have to abdicate the status quo. This is in chapter 5 of Matthew. Jesus preached this at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that the blessings come to those who are low. And here we are in chapter 19, and you have someone who's in a good situation for whom the gospel is not good news. Now, here's the problem, though, in an American setting. We all presume that we are what we call middle class or working class or poor. We all think this way. We all assume that the rich guy that Jesus is talking about is somebody else. It's not true, actually, because even if you're poor in this country and the gospel is addressed to you, there is someone who is more poor than you are. Even if you're homeless or you are abused and you live in this country, there is someone who is homeless somewhere else who has it worse than you do. Because ultimately, Scripture is forcing us to stop thinking about our own needs and to stop worrying about our own sense of being victimized and to instead reflect on the ways in which our actions have caused others suffering. The whole thing points toward an attitude of Eucharistia, of thanksgiving in life. You, as we've said many times, the good and the bad, what you call good and bad is all from the hand of the Lord. If you're rich, it means that you have gained wealth and you've held on to wealth. 
the way that you hold on to wealth is always keeping it from somebody else. That's the only way you hold on to wealth. If you think of it as water flowing, you have to dam it up. And if you're damming up the water, it means there's another area of land that's going to be dry. And if you allow the water to flow however it flows, then it's going to go there into the dry area naturally. Right. And so the rich person is one who's putting walls up and is holding on to their wealth. And they are doing something in order to keep that there. But then we also understand from the Beatitudes that all of this begins with the understanding that this reversal of fortunes can, must, and will take place. And so if you want to gain, you can't use these commandments as a way to justify the walls that you've built up. The walls that you build up are so that other people can't gain. And the piety that you build up is a way of showing that you have some kind of security and that what you're doing is okay and you're an okay person. That's the thing. All these checkboxes to show that you're an okay person. But it's even more than that. Because the idea of wealth is linked not just to material wealth that you acquire through commerce. It's linked to the wealth of the teaching. It has practical pastoral implications because ultimately the love of money and the acquisition of wealth work in opposition and subvert our ability to actually do all of the commandments that he listed properly. That's a huge part of it. But the reason wealth is an issue and is a major sin in scripture, the acquisition of wealth, is because people who acquire wealth are not just defensive and selfish as you're describing, but their mentality is self-righteous. They believe that they earned it and that they deserve it. And the point of the gospel is that if you've earned it and you deserve it, the point of the Sermon on the Mount, you already have your reward, which is a worldly reward. What he's doing is he's reached the apex of worldly reward. He's trying to project it into the kingdom, but you can't bring your wealth with you past the grave. The Egyptians tried, and the young man is trying to take his wealth with him past the grave by trying to push through this glass ceiling, if you will, but it's impossible. It's the kingdom of the heavens in Matthew, meaning it's beyond your reach, materially speaking, This is why there's this beautiful, beautiful proverb where the Lord tells his disciples it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, coming back to the metaphor of wealth, if you then understand that it also pertains to the wealth of the teaching, and then you make out of the teaching a material system of acquisition, where if I follow these rules, I will get something for it. Then your selfishness, your self-righteousness, your greed, your defensiveness goes beyond simply the kind of persecution that rich do against poor, but it becomes a kind of racism and persecution of the insider against the outsider that keeps the teaching imprisoned and prevents the bread of life from being shared with the poor on earth who are those who have not received the teaching. It's very important. And on the one hand, the practical teaching against wealth, people always try to rationalize in a parish setting because they want to make sure that the wealthy parishioners keep giving money. It would be better for you that your church would close than you mute the anti-wealth message of scripture. It would be better for you to fail materially than for you to risk not preaching this very harsh message against wealth to your community because the acquisition of wealth, as I said, is what causes us to dishonor our parents it's what leads to murder. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's very ingenious the way that the reading is structured and the commandments that are listed. But at the end of the day, God tells the disciples in the reading that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
people will say, oh, the eye of a needle is a small door. No, well, maybe it is. Maybe, even if you could make the case that it's a small door inside the walls of the ancient city, have you seen a camel? Do you really think that you're going to fit a camel through a small door? And it's evident in the disciples' reaction that they understood that it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, I mean, for the ancient world, this is the largest living thing and the smallest hole. Exactly. Whether it's an actual eye of a needle or a small door. And I've heard people say, well, but if they shed the bags of their wealth. No, no, not if they shed. Because if they're shedding the bags of their wealth, they're still achieving. And you still can't fit a camel through a small door. The only way for someone who is wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven is if God makes it so, which means that the initiative is not yours. It's not a worldly ascesis. It's an act of generosity. It's charity. It's charity on the part of God. Well, and so often I think that we are so ready with our checklists as human beings. It doesn't even matter what religion we are. Almost every religion has its prayer that if you say this prayer, then you're in. If you do this ceremony, if you have this rite, if you have this liturgy, then you're in. Protestant, Catholic, Muslim, Christian, anybody. They're uh, members that have this mentality. Whereas Every religion also is telling you, you must submit. And that's the thing with the rich man. The rich man said, good teacher, tell me the thing I need to know and I'll go. Now, what's ironic is he says, good teacher. Good teacher means I believe that you are good and you can teach me. Because I believe that I can be good, and, which is an underlying sin. That's why it's a sin. That's why it's such an offensive sin to say, oh, that person's such a good man. On what basis do you say anyone is good when you yourself, if you read Paul in 1 Corinthians, don't even know if you're good? Why are you making a judgment before the time, as we said in the previous episode? Yeah, in Romans 1 and 2. If, if yes. you did all, There's these people who did all these things, and you did worse. And I have to listen to people. Oh, he's such a good man. He's such a good priest. Well, if you know that he's a good priest, then you don't need to go to church. You're all set. At the same time, if he is a good teacher, then he has one lesson for you. Give up your wealth. Why did you go away sad? Did you go away sad because you called him good or because you called him teacher? <laughs> because if you call him teacher, then you should be learning from him. And this is the other thing is that there's a tendency among Americans to shop. You shop for teachers, you shop for parishes to see which is the one that I like. Which fits me. Which fits me. And what's the one that's going to fit you is the one that's going to pad your ego. And that's what he wanted. He wanted a good teacher who's going to pad his ego because once he heard what he had to teach, which ironically is what he's been teaching from the very beginning, the only basis on which he could call him a teacher at all and he goes away sad you know it's nice too that he's a young man because in scripture the only thing worse than a young man is a young man with money it's like i mean that goes beyond scripture that ego is, on top of ego I mean, in the midrashim i believe they present a young man who gives a word but they have to present him with a long beard because just the fact that he's a young man is already, already makes him suspect these are technical issues in scripture. The fact that it states that he was a young man. But getting back to this issue of the universal critique and the victim mentality, the point of scripture ultimately is that whatever's happening to you, maybe you were abused by your parents, maybe you had terrible tragedy in your family, maybe you've had economic hardship. I mean, people do struggle with things, but at the end of the day, there's always somebody who has it worse than you. And this is the point that scripture is driving at when it shames you. And I think that in an American setting, it's very important to make people understand that if you have food in your stomach, if you have the ability, whether by car or by bus or on foot, to actually make it to the church today, which means that you have means, you have capability, you're still drawing breath, then you yourself are rich in terms of the gospel because you have more than somebody else. Never mind the fact that you are rich or being made rich 
because you are being blessed with the reading at this very hour being poured into your ear. And if the reading is being poured into your ear, you are under judgment and you are not a victim. You are the problem. It's so essential. This is why Chrysostom, very powerfully in his famous Paschal sermon, the Ieraticon of Pascha, talks about rich and poor feasting together. And this always befuddles liberals because no one preaches more fiercely against wealth than John Chrysostom. And he's ruthless in the way that he undermines wealth, so much so that Christians either don't like Chrysostom or have to rationalize what he was saying because it sounds communist to them, because he's so critical of property and wealth and all these things. But Chrysostom says that the rich and the poor have to feast together. So what is Chrysostom? Is he liberal or conservative? He's neither. He's scriptural. That means that his critique always is universal. It cuts across everybody, as Paul does in Romans. It's important, too, that when he says to give it away and he becomes sad, I think this is significant, too, because a lot of people say, oh, when they rationalize this, oh, it's not money that is the source of evil, but the love of money that's the source of evil. You know, if I have money, it's okay as long as I don't love it. And so my question is, if you don't love it, then give it away. I don't see the problem. (laughs) I mean, every single one of us has something that if taken from us, we would be sad. We can even be, God forbid, living in a cardboard box under the bridge. Someone took our cardboard box, we would be sad. The only one who does not have something to lose is the one who is crucified. Exactly. That is, and that's the genius of the gospel, the only time the victim mentality does not do damage psychologically to individuals or groups is when the victim dies. In the early church, you could not be counted as a saint who was remembered on the calendar unless you gave your life under persecution. And you couldn't choose to give it up. It had to be taken from you at the moment it had to be given freely. So serious was the biblical proclamation against the victim mentality that you couldn't even volunteer to be martyred. You're absolutely correct. And so I think that this is ultimately the rub. And that is why in my own pedagogical approach to preaching, I insist upon the judgment of the reading as it is written. And I insist upon it universally. I don't care about the audience. I've said this many times to many people in many different ways. I don't assess the audience when I preach. If I assess the audience, then I'm no different than the young man who is making a judgment about Jesus. If the reading is given to critique the assembly and the proclamation is against the rich, I need to speak that proclamation clearly and then explain how it applies to the assembly, even if all of them are poor, in human categories of what rich and poor are. It's easy to see once you apply that presupposition that you're saying in your application, because we use these phrases, oh, I don't own my children, I'm only their guardians, or I'm only a steward of my wealth, I don't own it. Fine, how do you feel when you lose it? If your children, God forbid, are taken away from you, How do you feel? Do you feel like, oh, they're a steward? Do you feel like the shepherd who was given a flock of sheep and someone took one of the sheep and gave it to another shepherd? Is that how you feel? Because that's what a steward does. A steward's just watching over it. You know, when you give a dollar to the banker and you withdraw the dollar, is the banker sad? No, because he doesn't own it. He knows it's not his. He's just watching over it. That's how you have to feel. When Jesus comes and says, give up your wealth, you have to do it as the banker who has a vault full of money that doesn't belong to him. Oh, you want to make a withdrawal of $1,000? Here's your $1,000. You want to make a withdrawal of the whole thing? Here's your whole thing. It doesn't belong to you. You're just a banker. You're holding on to it while you've got it. And as soon as the one who actually owns it comes for it, you give it. 
And it's that simple. The banker is not sad when people make withdrawals. And as long as you hedge and as long as you cling to that money, all you're doing is putting one more layer in between you and your death, one more layer in between you and your abdication of your own power, one more layer between you and God. Ultimately, wealth is a mechanism of the victim mentality. It's a mechanism of our self-righteousness, of our entitlement, ironically. It's so hard to get the wealthy to understand that when they refer to welfare as an entitlement, they're saying as much about their own sense of entitlement as they are about the poor, who are their victims. Right. No, the rich person who complains about entitlement for the poor says, I've ticked off these boxes, so I deserve what I got. As soon as those people tick off the same boxes as I did, then I know that they're worthy of wealth. You set up the boxes to know that you're good for it, to know that you've deserved it. This is what the rich man is doing. What are the boxes I need to tick off to make sure that everyone knows that I'm good and therefore I deserve my wealth? That's what he wants to do because he can't give it up. He's too sad to give it up. Well, listen, it was great talking to you this week, Dr. Benton. Thank you very much, Father. It was good talking to you, too. I'm looking forward to next conversation. In the meantime, we just got to help our kids survive the first week of school without they themselves falling prey to the silly victim mentality. Have a great week. Take care. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.